beautiful. As I raise our screen, I want to tell you how delighted I am to have Rabbi Fred Sherlander Dobb with us this morning. Rabbi Dobb serves a Dot Shalom Reconstructionist congregation in Bethesda, Maryland, and he's also a past chair and currently on the steering committee of Interfaith Power and Light in the D.C., Maryland, and Virginia region. And he has leadership nationally as well with kind of national Jewish work around the environment, which feeds into interfaith religious work on the environment across the country. So we are really grateful to have um, an expert here. He is here at the special request of our own Earth Ethics team who started writing to me in October about who we would have for Earth Day. And um, we are so glad that he said yes. I'm glad so that they still like me. Um, And for those of you that remember back a few years at West, you might remember, and I will note that Rabbi Dobbs' mother-in-law, Gilda Morse, was a member and quite active at West until her death about 10 years ago. So he is both our honored guest this morning and really family. We're glad to have you. So first, the, the, the uh, you know, kind of shows of support when Interfaith Power and Light was said, I knew this was going well. And then when, um, you know, people remember Gilda, that just, it, it means a lot. I feel so at home here in so many ways. The community is very similar to Adat Shalom in a number of regards. Um, very thoughtful and progressive, doing things like singing Peter Mayer. Um, right? The only difference is our services are three times longer. So you've chosen well. Um, so... Adat Shalom is part of the Reconstructionist Jewish movement. If you haven't heard of that, it's no surprise, because we are statistically insignificant. Um, and you know, something, you know something about that, exactly. Right? In, in surveys, we round down to zero, and therefore do not actually exist. Um, but... Like ethical culture, Reconstructionist Judaism punches above its weight in having an intellectual and social and political influence that is far beyond what the numbers alone would suggest. And there's a remarkable connection between the two. Mordechai Kaplan was the rabbi who founded Reconstructionism starting in the 20s. In fact, his daughter was the first bat mitzvah in history. So striking a blow for equality and feminism um, back before those words were were very common. Um, His dissertation advisor in the social sciences with a little bit of religion was another rabbi doctor named Felix Adler. (laughs) And Kaplan was very explicitly drawn to, learned from, worshipped at, for the half of the group that would use that particular verb, um, at the New York, um, told you, feel right at home. Um, And and was so drawn that Reconstructionist Judaism really took shape within the Jewish world as kind of the Jewish ethical culture. In fact, that name was even considered um, as the name of the movement. Um, but then John Dewey published a book with Reconstruction in the title, and Kaplan went off on that tangent. Oh, well. Um, Jewish ethical culture would have been better. Um, so 
so much of what I say is parallel. Our community, you know, if the services are three, hour, three hours instead of one, then, of course, we're going to have to use more words to fill it. We are the people of the book, uh, which is actually many books. So we eventually do use the G word. <laughs> right. Um, but we don't really mean it. The only real difference between Jewish humanism, which many of you know, there's two communities, in many ways sister to both of us um, locally, um, the only real difference is we talk also about the God concept, godliness, divinity, without positing um, any kind of uh, intervening in history sort of, of deity. Um, but we stick with the tradition because there's so much beautiful poetry in the Hebrew, right? So that's kind of where it's at. That was all a long-winded introduction to some Saturday morning. If you've got nothing better to do, come on out to Bethesda. Um, but it also affects because I can't speak as anything but a rabbi, even though I also speak as an interfaith environmental activist. And so every once in a while, I may stray a bit theologically, but understand that what I'm actually citing is not some belief that there was a, a divinely ordained text that we have to follow. It's rather that at the very dawn of Western civilization, folks came up with, in their searching for what mattered the most some really powerful and occasionally problematic (laughs) words that lie at the heart of that collective culture. And we dig back for authenticity. So on this Earth Day, I ask, how old is the environmental movement? (laughs) Depends on how you're counting. So the first Earth Day was... 1970. I barely made it. I was three months old. Um, So, yes, at some level you could say 1970, or the stuff that led to it, including Apollo 8, Christmas Eve of 68, the the blue marble in space when we realized how vulnerable we were. Um, We could go back to 1962. Rachel Carson, right here in Silver Spring, published Silent Spring, um, and really woke people up in a deeper way. Um, We could go back to the turn of the century, founder of the Sierra Club, John Muir, and and kind of laying out that basis. We could go another 60 years back, 1844. Hmm? Transcendentalists specifically, Thoreau and Walden was where I was going, but Emerson a bit, yes. And Lake and Palmer had something to do. Um, so, but while we root ourselves backwards, and at some level the older we get, the more somehow authentic it is to drive us in the direction that we know we should go, but we don't always. I was going to ride my bike here from Tenley Town. I didn't. Right? For want of a nail, the kingdom was lost, right? For want of five minutes cleaning up from last night's Seder, um, right? I missed the window and I would have been too late. Um, what, should, what could I have done to have not burned the carbon to get here in, if hybrid, still internal combustion 
engine as opposed to a zero-carbon means of transit that's still sitting on my porch. We all know what the right thing is, and we have not yet fully structured our lives to enable us to do it. So we need something that we haven't fully stumbled on yet to get us across that threshold. And that is where antiquity comes in. So if you can root this ethic in Deuteronomy and Genesis and Isaiah, then hopefully we're on to something that can motivate us in a deeper way. That doesn't mean that God wrote those books. It doesn't mean that they are inherently holy, and it certainly doesn't mean that they're any holier than anyone else's holy books. Reconstructionism was the first movement to say, we're not the chosen people. We're taking that out of the liturgy. That's a really odious notion. Right? Um, so um, be open to the call of the ancient, even as we understand that the call to action which is not an Earth Day weekend call. It is an all-the-time call. And, it, and how important, just as that we shouldn't wear Black Lives Matter for one hour on Sunday and then not think and vote and act and donate and structure our lives and promote and hire, etc., as if that were true. The same, don't let 51 Sundays go by without, which I know here it's not a problem. I'm just, it's a rhetorical thing, right? But, but to make it the thoroughgoing commitment that it ought to be. Okay. Um, I was worried because usually we do a whole schmooze, pass the microphone thing around in our community, and uh, Phil Donahue style, I date myself, right, for not using a more modern, uh, but... Um, so I was actually worried, could I fill the 25-minute platform address? And now, of course, I'm worried about ending on time. So, um, so a few quick themes that I wanted to make sure that we covered to help lay the groundwork for this understanding. And the question to keep in mind throughout is not how good, I, how good do I feel about being in, you know, relatively thoughtful and green in a very progressive religious community, right? If you walk away from fellowship and worship more smug than you were before, then it has not worked, right? There's the famous uh, notion that actually was born, someone talking about the press, um, but it works so well for people in our line of work. Our job is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, and how, how true. When it comes to our carbon footprint, we are not the afflicted. We are not the Israelites. We are Pharaoh. Simply by living in the zip codes in proximity to Upper 16th Street, simply by living in this metro area with the skin tones that are most predominant here. It doesn't mean we all have it easy, but we are among the most privileged subset of humanity ever to walk the face of the earth. And even we who go out of our way to cut our carbon footprint, we have cut it from the prevailing um, footprint of these zip codes, which is the equivalent 
of the carbon output of 80 Bangladeshi citizens, and maybe we've brought it down to, you know, the footprint of only 50 Bangladeshis. Wow. What a difference that makes, those 10 miles a gallon extra when I paid that extra for the hybrid. You should have paid the extra for the hybrid. That is the right thing to do. But if the feeling then is I can now drive more because I have a hybrid, uh uh-uh. This is our challenge. How do we actually live with the full awareness of the scope of the challenge? Why care about climate even more than we already do as people of faith and of conscience? There's a simple threefold answer to this, which I'm sure most of you could give, but sometimes hearing it laid out, ABC, can help us to work on our own elevator speeches. Um, For the earth, for the poor and oppressed, and for our great-grandchildren. So, for the earth, we understand that the ecosystem, the biosphere, is both incredible and yet fragile. We understand that we are interdependent with it, but dependent on it. It is not dependent on us. And there's a collective hubris that comes from 21st century society for all that we have done, a feeling that, well, we've already essentially engineered the entire environment in human terms, right? So if I got theological, I would say there is a process that ordained it as good, as integral. And at the end of Genesis chapter 1, we're told that divinity stepped back at the, not after creating humans. Once humans are created, the God character in Genesis is silent. There's no referendum on people. And then we're told to be vegetarians. Kid you not. And then it says, and God stepped back and looked at all that had been created. Vihine and Yo, check it out, Tov Ma'od. It was very good. The interconnected whole that our ancestors inherited of creation at its fullest is very good. When we begin to tease out the constituent parts and say, this one's not necessary because we don't like it. And this one is lovely, but it stands in the way of corporate profits. And over here, this little pocket of creation, we couldn't quite agree on. And so even though there was a great effort to save it, it got bulldozed anyway. That does not square with Genesis. That does not square with ecological science. And it does not square with the needs of the earth. We need to add to liberation theology not only the empowerment of all human beings, and that was a radical notion. I don't know how many of you are into Hamilton. I I, I sort of made a bet to myself to see how many weekends in a row I can cite Hamilton from the Bema because it's just that good, right? 
Um, but, but when you think about what the founding fathers and mothers um, were working on, they were enfranchising from almost nobody in the colonies all the way to a whopping 10% of the population. Nice work, right? And of course it laid the groundwork. And just like those of you who know the Passover Seder story, we say Dayenu at each step. It would have been enough. Bull feathers. It wouldn't have been enough if God had led us to the shore of the Red Sea and said, now you're on your own, right? According to the narrative. So... Um, so we continue to enfranchise, and liberation theology has come in at critical moments to further enfranchise, and that's the role of feminist and womanist theology. That's the role of classical liberation theology that emerged out of the Latin American Catholic Church, but has been influential for so many of us, and that, of course, is Dr. King and the call to build the beloved community. Key milestones, each one, to get to say everyone matters. But if we stop there, we're in deep trouble. Because if we stay with such a human-centric view of things, where our work is only for the fullest possible enfranchisement of every one of the seven-odd billion people on the planet, and we don't stop to think about the countless organisms belonging to the tens of millions of other species. We are one species out of tens of millions. Humans fade into statistical insignificance. But boy, do we punch above our weight when it comes to what the earth looks like today. So we do it for the earth because the earth is, for all of its hugeness and beauty and power, it is in trouble. It is in trouble because of our ancestors and the assumptions we inherited, and it's in trouble because of us. And we are either part of the problem or part of the solution. For the earth, for the poor and the oppressed, and for your great-grandchildren. For the poor and the oppressed... This is a humanist congregation that affirms the worth of every person. I think that was the, from your email. Um, and, and, and how beautiful, and what does that really mean? Every time we flip on the light switch at home, if we have not yet put solar panels on the roof and gone to 100% green energy for our purchase, as Wes has done, nice work, y'all, and happy that that was something that we did together with the Dat Shalom and Interfaith Power and Light. We're all in this together. Um, but going deeper. Everything we do consumes. Everything we do offers challenge. Oi. So for those Bangladeshis, most of whom live within 10 feet of sea level, most of whom have barely contributed to and certainly don't have 401ks and inheritances from their wealthy white ancestors based on multiple generations of extraction of fossil fuels. The folks who have done the least to contribute to the climate crisis are the ones who are feeling it the fastest and the worst. And if we really looked at 
the systems of it, we would realize just how unethical as well as unsustainable so many of the things we do. Like my knowing in the back of my head that if I didn't ride my bike here, I could get in my Prius 10 minutes later and still make it. That's privilege. I'm calling myself out on it, although it made logistical sense within the context of the life that we currently lead, it's not sustainable and it's not ethical. And I'm holding up the mirror to say, what should we do between now and next Earth Day weekend to check our own assumptions and our own privileges, knowing that every time we emit carbon, we are hurting those on the margins of society. And finally, every time we emit carbon, we are also hurting our own great-grandchildren. We are giving them less of a world to live in. We are giving them a world that is going to have more conflict driven by environmental refugees as water patterns shift and growing patterns shift and scarce resources become scarcer. We are giving them a world that doesn't have as much beauty in it, that is less sustainable. What kind of a present is that? Our tradition has a beautiful expression, Lador Vador, from generation to generation, as if it's an unbroken chain. And that's a beautiful image. And the question is what about the earth, Lador Vador? All of its species not counting the thousands that go extinct every year on our watch because of how we've structured the international economy. So do it for the earth. And if that's not good enough, do it for the poor. And if that's not good enough, do it for your own progeny. And if that's not good enough, I give up. (laughs) So... Two minutes left. Yeah, no worries about filling the time. Um, Yeah. So um, there's a theme this month of creativity at West, which is a beautiful notion. And I'm going to almost close with a line about the, um, uh, the power of what it is that we're trying to protect, the brilliance and the importance of its fullness, because there is an inherent creativity in the universe. There's an inherent creativity in ecology, And it behooves us to be creative in defense of creation, which is itself creative. This is Annie Dillard. Show of hands, right? Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, 1974, writing about uh, rural Virginia, um, one of the most sensitive and beautiful um, nature writers of, of the previous generation. The creator goes off on one wild specific tangent after another, or millions simultaneously, with an exuberance that would seem to be unwarranted, and with an abandoned energy sprung from an unfathomable font. Notice how she's using creator language, but it's the kind that reconstructionists or ethical culture folk can pretty much get behind, right? It's an unfathomable font. I like that for the origins of divinity. What is going on here? The point of the dragonfly's terrible lip, the giant waterbug, birdsong, or the beautiful dazzle and flash of sunlighted minnows in the creek is not that it all fits together like clockwork, 
it doesn't particularly, but that it all flows so freely wild, like the creek, that it all surges in such a free, fringed tangle. Think about Passover here, because I'm really ending with Passover. Her last line, freedom is the world's water and weather, the world's nourishment freely given, its soil and sap, and the creator loves pizzazz. Be creative in defense of creation and in defense of freedom. This is day two of Pesach, the festival of matzahs, as the Bible calls it, and also the festival of spring, and it's come to be the festival of freedom as well. Three powerful reminders rolled into one of connection with a people, of connection with the earth, and of particular connection with those who need our help the most. We tell the story every year of the plagues, and many of you know the beautiful story that while it's understandable that the human Israelites being chased by the forces of repression, when they saw those forces, tyranny, drowning in the Red Sea, they sang. According to the Midrash, a very early commentary, the angels started to sing too. They're so happy to see their oppressed Israelites who they've been rooting for finally triumph and God hushed them and said, my children are drowning and you would sing. Sure, we're on the side of the Israelites, but when Egyptians have to die because of the horrible karma, because of the inevitable byproduct of their choices that previous generations had made, that's nothing to sing about. The plagues inflicted on the Egyptians were plagues on a whole society. Because as Abraham Joshua Heschel said, in a free society, which ancient Egypt wasn't, but to some extent it works anywhere, some are guilty, all are responsible. Some are guilty, all are responsible. What were the plagues? When a society hardens its heart to those who are marginal, when a society stops thinking about the future in an open way and focuses too much on fetishizing the status quo, when its leaders or its most empowered citizens feel so invested in the privileges they have accrued, that injustice becomes pervasive in defense of those privileges, then A, instant karma is going to get you, and there will be comeuppance, and B, how is that comeuppance expressed? Ecosystem imbalances. The water turns red. Algae bloom. Too many frogs everywhere. We have the opposite problem today, but that's what happens when you take one species out of the mix and then those that used to be held in check explode. Think deer. Right? And we could go on all the way through cattle disease, worse and worse drought, 
extreme weather events like hail, you see where this is going. It leads to the death of our own children. We always identify with the Israelites. The challenge of the confluence of Earth Day and Passover is to own our inner Pharaoh as well and make sure that we always stand on the side of freedom, even though Pharaoh lies within us. So ask yourself what you can do even more, even better, to be a citizen of the planet, to stand up for Earth, to stand up for the poor, and to stand up for those who will follow us. Thank you.